Hi there and welcome to Vroom, your weekly motorsport fix with me, Michael Hill. Well, it's hard to believe that two weeks have passed since our last podcast, but they have, and what a show we've got lined up for you this week. 24 hours away from the start of the Superbike World Championship at Motorland Aragon, so this week we thought we're going to turn things all things Superbike. We will be looking ahead to the World Superbike, World Supersport and World Supersport 300 Championships that kick off at Motorland Aragon tomorrow, and we'll also be having a little look forward to the upcoming BSB Championship. Two great guests lined up. Uh, Gregory Haynes will be up first, a uh, former colleague of mine working within the World Superbike Championship, now, of course, lead commentator uh, for World Superbike uh, for Eurosport. And a little bit later on in the show, we'll be joined by title contender in BSB, Christian Idden, who, uh, of course, was a, made a cameo, didn't he, uh, just before Christmas with some, uh, some great dad jokes. And he is back telling us a little bit about uh, what he's looking forward to, his first impressions of the uh, Panigale V4R. And uh, he's going to tell us as well four riders that he thinks are going to be ones to watch in BSB this year. Well, before we get to uh, our first guest, Greg Haynes, who will be firing some quick questions at him, predictions galore uh, for Greg, putting him on the hot spot, let's have a quick roundup of things that have been happening in the last couple of weeks. Starting with the latest round of the ESBK, the Spanish Superbike Championship, Jordi Torres and a number of other riders not racing at Navarra in Spain. They were on uh, Moto E duty for the uh, World Championship, or the World Cup, as it's known, at Le Mans. Uh, so it was Carmelo Morales who took race one and race two. A double victory, 50 points in the bag for Carmelo Morales. We move from Spain to Italy in the Italian CIV Championship, and Michele Pirro, the multiple national champion on a superbike, riding for the Barney Racing Ducati team, made it another double, making it four from four. A maximum of 100 points for the Italian, and he extends his lead in the CIV Championship. Sticking with the uh, the two wheels, we just had a fantastic Le Mans Grand Prix, the French Grand Prix at Le Mans in France. Starting with Moto E, Eric Granado took his first win of the season to move up into fourth place in the Moto E World Cup standings. Moto 3, it was a first win of the season for Sergio Garcia, the first win for Gas Gas and the first win for the Aspar team this year. He was joined on the Moto3 podium by Philip Salach, uh, his first ever podium, and a very exuberant Ricardo Rossi, uh, who uh, was, uh, well, let's just say, he was using a few uh, t- uh, turns of phrase in the in the Parc Fermi, which I think we can forgive him for. Uh, his first ever podium, a best result prior to the Le Mans Grand Prix of 11th. John McPhee finished fourth to get his first points of the season. And Pedro Acosta, the championship leader, despite only finishing eighth after crashing and remounting, uh, now extends his lead in the Moto3 World Championship to 54 points. Raul Fernandez made it two wins in Moto2 for the um, rookie, uh, the teammate to Remy Gardner. Gardner, incidentally, finishing in second place to uh, continue to lead uh, the championship and Marco Bezzecchi in third. Tony Arbolino, who was a guest on uh, the podcast a short while ago, uh, two or three episodes back, in fact, we talked to him 
during the Qatar Grand Prix. So if you haven't heard that episode, uh, go back on to anchor.fm forwardcast, uh, sorry, forward slash vroom dash podcast. That's anchor.fm forward slash vroom, V-R-O-O-M dash podcast. And you can see all of the previous 32 or so episodes of the show. Some great guests that we've had in the past. But Tony Arbolino, uh, the Moto2 rookie, getting his best result of the season so far in fourth position. As we said, Remy Gardner, son of the 1987 world champion in 500s, Wayne Gardner continues to lead in Moto2. Turning the attention then to MotoGP, and it was a bit of a crash fest with uh, both Suzuki's of Alex Rins and Joan Mia going down. Alex Marquez, uh, at one point looking like a podium would be on the cards, he eventually uh, finished inside the top six. His brother Mark Marquez looking as though it was going to be a return to winning ways for the 93, the multiple-time world champion. He was in a class of his own. He was lapping two or three seconds faster than anybody else. Unfortunately, he went down, the Repsol Honda rider crashing. He remounted. He fought his way back up into a top 10 contention, and he crashed again, thankfully without injury, but zero points for Marc Marquez. That wasn't the only drama of the race, though. Jack Miller did take victory, two on the bounce for Jack Miller. And uh, it was done in exceptional circumstances. A double long lap penalty for speeding in the pit lane uh, meant that Miller had to fight back not once, but on two occasions. He eventually took the win from the local hero, Joan Zarco, who was very, very quick in the closing stages of the French Grand Prix. And Fabio Quattararo, who now leads the MotoGP World Championship after finishing in third position. There was heartbreak for Aprilia as both machines failed to finish and Valentino Rossi got a couple of points, albeit uh, quite a distance from the leading positions. We turn our attention from two wheels to four wheels. No Formula One action in the last week. Uh, so, of course, we're gearing up for the Monaco Grand Prix uh, this coming weekend. But there was some action over the pond stateside with the latest round of the uh, NTT IndyCar Championship and the news from the IndyCar Championship was that Roman uh, Grosjean, who, uh, well, that horrific crash that he had in Bahrain last year, defying death, thankfully was okay, he came away unscathed from that horrifying crash in Formula One. He took his first ever IndyCar pole, led the race for 44 laps, and took his first ever IndyCar podium in second position. Scott Dixon continues to lead the title chase. We've had three first-time winners in the first, time, uh, first five races. And the big news from the Indianapolis uh, Speedway, the road course that was in use there just a couple of weeks before the, uh, the big Indy 500, was that 20-year-old Dutchman Renus VK became a first-time IndyCar winner. Scenes of jubilation from him and his family, and uh, he took the win. The podium was actually completed by Alex Palau, uh, the Spaniard who uh, continues to be at the sharp end and a title contender in IndyCars. Right, well, uh, after six and a half minutes of giving you a quick recap, as I said, now that motorsport is getting back up and running, we are getting a lot more things to talk about. So uh, that's the quick recap done. As I said, BSB testing uh, will have already taken place by the time this uh, podcast airs. But now it's time to look ahead. And we look ahead fondly to the Superbike Championships of the UK, the BSB Championship, which gets underway in a little over a month. But first, we're going to talk to Greg Haynes as we look ahead to World Superbike 2021. So 
So as 12 months have passed, it's a bit like Deja Vu on the Vroom podcast this week. I am joined by, uh, by my good friend, well, we say that loosely, uh, by my uh, former colleague, uh, Greg Haynes, who is dialing in from the UK. He's uh, finally made it back to, uh, to good old Blighty. Uh, Greg, as I was saying, a bit like uh, Deja Vu, you were one of our early guests on the show last year. We uh, obviously discussed uh, a bit of a preview about what was going to happen in World Superbike and BSB last year, and we weren't too far wrong with our predictions. So we thought we'll get you back on because, of course, World Superbike kickstarts in about 48 hours time for 2021 and there is so much excitement this year finally michael finally good to be talking to you again and yeah here we are we normally have a very short off season don't we for world superbike we'll normally finish in late october early november and we're back again at philip island in late february this has been quite possibly the longest winter break ever so finally let's get going again yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? We, as you say, we would have normally been at Phillip Island. If the calendar was similar to, to the last couple of years, we would have been to Thailand or Qatar, depending on which which year we're talking about. Mm, yeah. But as you say, a, a good four or five months of solid testing from the riders. There are some changes with with test days, aren't there, this year, in terms of uh, physical days limited to 10. Um, but that hasn't stopped the Superbike and Supersport by, uh, guys from being out there. Um I'm not sure where we start with this because there's been so much going on. Uh, maybe let's just take a moment to, to talk about some of the changes uh, in terms of the the, the the riders and where they've gone. No change at Kawasaki. Um, Jonathan Ray remains. Uh, Alex Lowe's remains, although there is an upgraded bike. We uh, are still unsure as to, to whether it's a brand new bike. I believe it's a bit of a hybrid, a bit of an, yeah. an evolution uh, of the bike. Uh, we've got a brand new bike at, uh, at BMW. The big news there, of course, is that Michael Vandermark has hopped ship uh, from uh, the uh, the now uh, Pata Bricks Yamaha, uh, new sponsor there, of course, for them, and he's moved into the uh, the BMW squad. Uh, Toprak Razgatlioglu uh, has survived a COVID scare. Thankfully, he's over that. Uh, he's joined by the reigning Supersport champion, Andrea Locatelli. Ducati, well, they've retained uh, Scott Redding, which I think we knew was going to happen, didn't we? Because it was a two-year contract, but they've drafted in, I think, a rider for me that has to be one of the revelations last year, Michael Ruben Rinaldi. How good is it to see the number 21 on a factory bike again? Uh, you yeah. know, it's uh, quite good to see. Uh, Chaz Davies looked as though for a long part, part that he was going to be hanging up his leathers. He's now swapped and gone uh, to, to go 11. We'll talk a little bit about that and that amazing colour scheme. I'm not, I'm not sure what you think about it, but I love the colour scheme of go 11. Throw into the mix Garrett Gerloff. We've got uh, Kota Nazani, uh, the uh, the Japanese rider. There's a whole host of rookies on the table, Bautista and Haslam. I mean, where do we start with this? I mean, it is a stellar, stellar field this year. And I honestly think we could have seven, eight, nine guys winning races or certainly fighting for the podium. Yeah, one of the criticisms World Superbike has had, let's just say since I came back in 2015, since I came into the paddock, and I can't believe this is year seven being in the same paddock as you. I don't know how I've survived that. But uh, the depth is really there, isn't it, this year? And it's going to be so close. You cannot afford to make a mistake. We say this every year, don't we? But, you know, it's like I was chatting with Chas Davis about this at the January test in Jerez. In 2015, he might have had a bad, a bad afternoon, but he'd still be third, fourth. Now you're going to be ninth or tenth. And that really is the case because all those names you've just mentioned, every manufacturer has at least one, if not two, second, let's call them satellite team. And the level is so, so high. Qualifying is going to be more important than ever before because, of course, it decides your grid position for not just the first race, but the sprint race as well. And just looking at the notes I've got here, you know, again, they've taken time off qualifying as well now, Michael. So that's down to just 15 minutes for Super Bowl. It is 10 minutes less than it was last year. So if you make a mess of that, you're in big trouble. You've really messed up your race weekend. If you're at the back of the grid for those first two races, 
it's a hell of a lot of points gone. And just to answer what you said about the Go 11 Ducati, I think it's good. It's quite weird to see a Ducati that's not red, isn't it? But I think it's good from a commentary point of view. You know, you're going to be commentating on your paddock show stage once we get fans back in and that gets going. We'll be on Eurosport. We need different colours because if there's too much of one colour, it's a bit more difficult for us. I think it's nice they've, they've had the, the guts to do something a bit different, actually. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I mean, some of the riders have been talking about the riders. I mean, we can keep mentioning riders. There's a whole host of rookies as well. Axel Bassani, Loris Cresson gets a full season. Yeah. One rookie who we haven't mentioned, who is a big, big name, Tito Rabat, uh, double, yes. double Moto2 world champion. Tati Mikado is back now riding a Honda. Um, Jonas Folger as well, former front runner uh, and podium man in Grand Prix. You know, he's now fully back. Uh, Eugene Laverty uh, did his first test uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, and was in the top six after doing almost 200 laps. Hasn't ridden a bike uh, at all, really, um, over the winter. Uh, and he's back in the mix. So, you know, as you said, it's not like World Superbike in the past where you've got your factory teams and you think that's your six or seven or eight guys that are going to be at the front. Now, because mm. we've got these satellite teams on the same machinery, and I think that's the key point here, isn't it? We see it in MotoGP yes. where you've got the factory Ducati of Jack Miller and Peko Bagnaya, and then you get the Pramac bike, but they're on the same bikes. And now yeah. we've got that in World Superbike. So, you know, you've got 20, 22 guys on the grid. Wild cards are back as well. I know Marvin Fritz is going to be doing some wild cards later in the year. Um, I mean, I don't know what, what your feeling is on this. I mean, starting the season, you've got to say Jonathan Ray is still the favourite. I mean, we've we've said that after he won the first title and he, he keeps going, but he, <laughs> I don't know where he gets the motivation from, um, but he just seems to reinvent himself or find something else in the locker year in, year out. Um, but I'm not sure he's going to have it all his own way. I mean, look at the step that Alex Lowe's has made. Reading has a, another year in the championship. I mean, you'd be a hard man to bet against Jonathan Ray, um, but I don't think it's going to be like two or three years ago where he's winning races by eight, nine seconds because he didn't do that last year. You know, he was made to work hard for race wins last year. He still yeah. ultimately won. Um, but I think we're going to see a, a real dogfight. I think the main protagonist, as you've said there, Chaz Davies, you've mentioned, is going to be there. I think Garrett Gerloff's going to make a massive step um, as well. Um, but no, I think it's going to be great. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. What I will say, going into the paddock at that Barcelona test back in April, I think it was, wasn't it? April, May sort of time. There's a real feeling now, Michael, in the paddock this year that I've never experienced in World Superbikes before. This real feeling of seriousness, uh, secrecy. You know, you go into the garage, you might go in with a cameraman, or even if it's just you having a look and the garage door will come down, or they'll put some partition in front of the bike. And I know that's normal in Formula One. That's normal in MotoGP. You don't normally get that in World Superbikes. Well, you speak. For, I mean, you speak for yourself. I've never been allowed in a garage to see me coming and to slam the door in my face. So, business as usual for me. Lock it and throw away the key. But no, there's this real secrecy. You know, I went into Tati Mercado and uh, I said, yeah, "Have you got a quick word?" He said, "I'll check with the press officer." You never get that normally from, yeah. from one of the riders with with respect, one of the lower teams on the grid. Everyone's being so guarded, and I think that's great. You know, HRC are the real secret people, as we always know. Leon Camia, the team boss. Let's not forget that too. And he's working for the guy called Jordi Arquer, who's a Catalan guy. And he's previously run the Moto3 Australia Galicia team. He's worked with Alex Rins, Alex Marquez, Bartararo, and a number of others and taken loads of titles along the way. They're going to be there, of course. I agree with what you say. Jonathan Ray has to be the favourite. I said last year, if I did put money on it, which I never do, but if I did, I would have put it on Reading. I suppose I should stick with what I said, although I'm really feeling at the moment I'd <laughs> the more I talk about this with you or anyone else, I'm actually thinking I'd have to put the money on Jonathan Ray again, just because 
you know, he very, very, very rarely makes a mistake. On a bad day, he's sensible. He'll finish fourth. Even in Estoril last year with some of those struggles, he finished fourth to win the title in race one. But if, but the thing you could say that Jonathan doesn't have this year, and his teammate Alex Lowe's even said this to me on the record in an interview earlier this year, Jonathan Ray doesn't have the top speed advantage he used to have. You know, the Ducati is much quicker now in a straight line. So is the Honda. So you could argue that they're, they're on the back foot in a way. They've, they've made lots of changes themselves. That testing rule you mentioned before really does, I think, punish Kawasaki more than most because they've got most money. They would have done a lot more testing had that rule not been in place. Same goes for Honda and to some extent Ducati. So it's all designed, isn't it, in a way to bring everything as close together as they possibly can, which is great for us. Jonathan's going to kill me if he hears this, but I hope he doesn't have it all his own way. We don't want him to have it all his own way. We don't want anyone to have it all their own way. We want it to be as close as possible. I think, really, you'd be silly or brave, but let's say silly for saying it won't be the Ray Redding show over the course of the season, I mean, for the title. We're going to have other people winning races. I think we're going to have a load of guys on the podium, all those names you've just said. I'm particularly excited about Rinaldi. He's oozing this. When you look him in the eye and do an interview, he's just oozing this confidence. It's confidence, course, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. confidence. And there's not really any pressure on Rinaldi because nobody's really expecting him to come out and win the World Championship, are they? Let's be honest. So anything he does is going to be a bonus. But with Scott Redding, on the other hand, I would say there is some pressure now because it's not his first season anymore. He knows the bike. He knows the tyres. He knows the electronics. However, there are still going to be, let's not forget this, Redding, for the Honda boys mostly, uh, for Rinaldi on a factory bike. There's going to be tracks they haven't yet done on a World Superbike. Assen, Donington, all these circuits that got taken off the calendar last year because yeah. of COVID. Navarra's new for everybody, obviously, and so is uh, Most and the Czech Republic. Navarra looks interesting, and, and Most. In fact, you'd say certainly Most looks like a Yamaha track to me. It's very, very twisty, isn't it? Yeah, and no, it's we interesting. We get there. We just don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting. I want to come on and talk a little bit about the tracks in a little while. But since you've mentioned Most, I was speaking to Loris Cresson actually uh, yesterday, the Belgian rider who is making a full-time debut uh, in the championship. And yeah. uh, great to see that that Loris is there, and great to see Pedicini as well with two young riders. I know a lot of people say, "Oh, why have you gone for those riders? They're riders that are paying." But you know what? We need new riders. We need new names. That they need the, the chance to develop. And you know whether they fight for for points or, or whether they are at the back of the field. At least they're out there, right? It's new names for us to talk about. But, you know, I was talking to Loris Cresson. He was actually doing a, a track day in Most uh, because obviously from Belgium, oh. they've been heavily hit with COVID. So he's been very limited in terms of where he can actually test. And, and I said mm. to him, so what did you think of the track? And he said, it reminds me of Donington Park. Um, he said, very, really? very few places to overtake. He said, but a great venue. So, I mean, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I want to just fire uh, maybe five or six quick fire questions at you. Uh, okay. Just to get your take on things, because I know that uh, we, we've not uh, had you on the podcast for the last year. A lot's gone on. So I'm just going to fling a few questions at you uh, and get your opinion. So, can I ask uh, the audience if there's any struggles? Yeah, you can. You can ask the audience. You can phone a, I was going to say you can phone a friend, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I won't yeah, finish yeah. the sentence that I was going to say. But uh, joking <laughs> aside, right then, uh, here we go. Uh, Garrett Gerloff, uh, first win this year, yes or no? Yes. Kota Nazana uh, will be uh, one of the revelations of the series or he's going to take a bit of time to find his feet? Oh, I know. Are these supposed to be one word answers? No, you can answer it. Brief, brief answers. You can give us brief okay, answers. Okay. Um, yes, it's going to take time. I think it's going to have to take time for the tyres and everything else. I would say this, watching him at Barcelona testing, he's incredible to watch trackside. His shoulder is down on the ground. He's going to be exciting. I think he's going to be giving us some of the most spectacular shots. But I'm not expecting him to be regularly challenging 
in the top 10 too soon. If he is, fantastic. But I think it's going to take a little time. Uh, Tito Rabat, Rookie of the Year, yes or no? <sighs> Sorry to say this, no. I think Tito's a great guy. I really like Tito. I had a great chat with him in Um He's been struggling no end with chatter. I lost count of the number of times he ran off the track when I was watching trackside at Barcelona, shaking his head, can't get it stopped. I think he's got to accept in his head now, this is not a MotoGP bike, this is a super bike. We've seen plenty of people come over and make it work. Checker, Biaggi, Melandri um, and, and others. Um, but we've seen others who couldn't make it work. You think of people like Stefan Bradle and uh, a few others. I think it's going to be tough. Maybe once he just accepts this is different, it might be the, the turning point. But he seems to be getting very frustrated. So I think it's going to be tough, to be honest. Alex Lowe's uh, able to match Jonathan Ray uh, at, at pretty much every circuit. We saw last year, obviously, at some circuits he could. Is he going to be more of an in-house competitor for Jonathan Ray, yes or no? I think he'll be closer than he was. If I had to say yes or no, it's going to have to be no, only because, and that's saying more about Jonathan Ray than it is about Alex Lowe's, it's, it's Jonathan Ray. <laughs> He's statistically the best World Superbike rider we have ever seen. I don't think anyone would beat Jonathan Ray in that team right now. If Honda was to win a race uh, in 2021, who is the rider that gets their first win? Is it Mercado for MIE? Is it uh, Alvaro Bautista or is it Leon Haslam? Where would you put your money? Uh, as much as I love Landry and Mercado as a guy, it's not going to be him because the MIE team is far more limited in resources. I know in theory everyone's got the same things, but over a season, I think we're going to see that increase dramatically because they've got less budget than the factory team. I know they have HRC support, but it's not the same team. Uh, now, that's a, that's a tricky one. Will it be Bautista or will it be Haslam? I'm going to have to say Bautista, simply because I think he was close to beginning it last year. Had he not high-sided out of that sprint race at Barcelona, he probably would have won. Oh, Leon Haslam's going to kill me, but I'll have to say Bautista. Uh, which of the three BMW riders will be first on the podium? Jonas Folger, Michael Vandermark or Tom Sykes? Well, it'll be a bit embarrassing for the factory team, I think, to say. It's fair to say if it's Folger or if it's Laverty. Um, I will say... I've got, it's got to be Sykes, he hasn't it, surely. He, he's got more experience with the team and more data. I've got to say, it could be Vandermark, I guess. I'll say Tom Sykes. Uh, okay, then. Title contender, Chaz Davies, yes or no? Uh, no. I think he's going to start the season strongly. Chaz traditionally does not cope well under pressure. I don't mean that as a criticism, but we've just seen it a few times. He's had a lot of incidents early on in the season and then starts winning and scoring a load of points at the end, like he did in 2016 with all those wins like he did last year with most points in the last nine races. I think they're going to be right there at the beginning because Chaz is on exactly the actual same bike he won with at Estoril, now in the Go 11 team. So I think right at the beginning, I think he's going to be right there. He's going to be challenging Reading and Rinaldi, I hope he is. But I think as the season goes on, Rinaldi's going to get more comfortable. But let's be honest, Rinaldi and Reading are in the factory team. Uh, it's going to depend on Go 11's budget too. And especially in these COVID times, sponsors are being affected. Can they get as much testing in? Can they afford to buy all the new parts? Just because the regulations say those parts have to be made available, it doesn't necessarily mean these other teams can always afford them or want them. So for that reason, I'll say no, he won't be a title contender. But I do think he'll win one or two races and hopefully more. Great. Actually, I, I like this. I could actually just fire a load of questions at you, but uh, let, let's get back <laughs> and talk a little bit more. I know a lot of people have been messaging and tweeting uh, about the calendar, and there's always criticism every year in every championship when calendars come out. There was last year when everyone said, oh, we're only racing in Spain. Again, this year, there's been some some really iconic circuits that have been taken off the calendar. Imola, 
uh, is not on the calendar. Uh, Philip Island has just been postponed until 2022. Where do yes. you sit with this? Because I, I can see both sides of the fence. I can see as a fan from the outside looking in that they want to go back to the iconic circuits like Monza. They want to do Imola. They want to go back to Brands Hatch. Mm. I mean, Brands Hatch hasn't been on the calendar for more than a decade, right? So, you know, the fact that Brands hasn't suddenly reappeared on the calendar shouldn't really be a surprise to people. But, you know, it always frustrates me and angers me a little bit when people are not really looking at the big situation. You know, we are just mm. coming out, thankfully coming out of a global pandemic, which limits um, global travel. And, and given that this is a world championship, um, you know, a lot of people made the comparison last year with BSB. Oh, but they still managed to do three quarters of the circuits. It's like, yes, because they're all in the same country, right? People are only traveling an hour or two hours to get from venue to venue. It's very, very different when you're bringing in, you know, potentially 200 riders, from 23, 24 countries, plus all the personnel, yeah. the logistics of moving things around. Um, yeah. You know, Dorner are not in an easy position. Formula One are not in an easy position. They've just cancelled races and just put another race back on in Turkey, I saw last week, didn't they? They cancelled yeah. Canada. Canada, we're yeah. going back to Turkey. So, you know, it's a difficult situation. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a nine-round championship where we're not going to the same country several times, or like in the case this year, we get a new circuit, Navarra. Yes, it's back in Spain. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a new venue. We've never been there before. It's something new for the championship. It may, means that we can get a full complement of races. Surely that's good for everybody uh, and for the, for the longevity of the championship. If we start doing five and six round championships, that's not what anybody wants. Yeah, my, my personal opinion is certainly since Dawn has been involved in 2013 and the TV production from 15. I've always said they've just, the only thing they need to do if they can is make it different. It's got to be different to MotoGP because, you know, the layman at home, we're, we're petrol heads who are watching it, reading it every single day, aren't we? Constantly through the day, checking updates, checking Twitter, checking websites, videos and all the rest of it. But, you know, to your layman at home, to your casual viewer, to my auntie Brenda who switches in or... You know, your Uncle Bob up in Middlesbrough or whoever it is. Have you, joking aside, have you actually got an Auntie Brenda? Because I do have yes, an I Uncle have. Bob. Uh, do you really? Yeah, do yeah. You my dad's Brenda. brother's called Bob. Yeah, sorry. Just, we digress, I, but yeah. I, I didn't even know that. That's funny. Well, hello, hello, Uncle Bob, if you're tuned in. Um, no, but if they're watching at home, well, your Uncle Bob might know. Your, your dad's a big racing fan, so are you. But yeah, what I mean is, to the layman watching at home, they don't necessarily know what the difference is between a Repsol Honda a Ruba Ducati, do they? One of them's red and one of them's orange, but they don't know one of them's a MotoGP bike, one of them's a superbike. It's got to be different. It's got to look different. Certain rules have got to be different. And the biggest thing, of course, is the circuits need to be different. So I think it's great that we've got normally Imola, uh, you know, we've got Navarra. I have to say, the cynical side, when Navarra first appeared, is, oh, they're scraping the barrel a bit there because that's a national Spanish circuit which hasn't even been on the CEV calendar since, I think, 2015. On the other hand, I'd much rather have it there than not have a round at all, would you? And the same with Most and the Czech Republic. And they look like great circuits. That first corner at Navarre, did you see the onboard lap that the GMT 94 yeah, did? Yeah. It's like it's almost, I won't say it's flat out, but it's not far off. It's a bit like turn one at Le Mans, you know, up the hill there. Um, okay, it would be better if we could go to Australia. Let's not kid anyone, by the way. Argentina will not happen this year. Indonesia will not happen this year. They'll try their best, but it's not going to happen with travel arrangements. And I think most people involved know it won't happen. It has to be there at the moment for contractual reasons. I'm not saying it won't happen in the future. I very much doubt it. I'm expecting a full European season again this year. Would it really? be See, I, see I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it the, the, the way that the calendar came out. And I know that, again, yeah. when the calendar first came out, and I'm not saying this because I, I work in the championship, mm -hmm. it's just my personal feeling. 
Yeah. It's not a surprise to me that Australia was cancelled. No, um, not at all. Because of what happened with the, the two-week quarantine for the tennis. So I think that's that yeah. was a given. I think that was always going to happen. Yeah. But I think the way that the calendar first came out, it was very much rear-end loaded, wasn't it, in terms of you know one or two rounds early on, and then there was going to be this big gap in the event yeah. that races yeah. had to be rescheduled. Makes and perfect it, sense, it, doesn't it? made perfect sense because they've now slotted in Most, they've now slotted in Navarra, um, they've been able to reschedule Assen so that we still get Assen. So... I think the way that they put the calendar together worked. I don't know. I mean, I've just come back from from the US um, for, for the first round of Moto America. And I have to say that I was, wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, the travel and going through the airport was very, very similar. You get all the questions. You've got to show your documentation, your visas, all that kind of stuff, as you still do now in Europe. So that was very much the same. But I have to say that from getting off the plane in the States, and I know the States is very, very different, and all of the individual states in the US seem to have their own own laws, and they seem to make it up as they go along. There was about 30,000 people at Road Atlanta. Not one fan was asked to wear a mask. Uh, There were fans in the paddock. The majority of riders didn't wear masks. Uh, Certainly the organization did. We all wore masks. Uh, There were one or two riders that did wear masks. But, you know, I was speaking to riders there that are 18, 19. They've already been fully vaccinated. You know, the way that they're doing things in America is very, very different. I mean, I know you haven't been vaccinated yet. I haven't been vaccinated yet because we're doing it by this this year, uh, you know, your age, your date of birth. In and America, you'll be, you, you'll be before me. Yeah, study on, study on. I might not have any hair, but at least I don't have any gray hair. But that's another podcast. <laughs> um, but it, it seems to me when I was speaking to these riders over there that as long as you're over the age of 16, you can rock up to your local urgent care center, say you want the vaccine, and they give you mm. the vaccine. I mean, they're, they're vaccinating, you know, I think they've, they've gone from having very, sort of very nearly no vaccines to vaccinating almost as much as the population as we have in the UK. But the perception over there is very very different um you know and i was that's in... your feeling is it quite a relaxed feeling when you're in the paddock do you know what it was really weird because obviously i, I rocked up on well i landed on the uh, on the wednesday and uh, obviously just drove straight to the um so i landed on the tuesday and i on the, the wednesday we had some some briefings and meetings and stuff and i rocked up and, and certainly the, the production meetings we had everybody was in the hotel we all had masks on just the normal white masks you know yeah um that was so different when we got to the circuit. I mean, everybody from, from Moto America, all the TV crews, all the presenters, we were all in masks. That's a given. But the general feeling in the paddock was like back to normal, which for me was a big shock. I wasn't really sure how to expect, you know, what to expect. I was still sanitizing hands every 15, 20 minutes. You know, mm. I went down for breakfast in the hotel on the second day and uh, still had the mask on, you know, coming out of the lift. And everybody looked at me like I had two heads because even the people in the hotel serving the breakfast didn't have masks on. It, really? It was, yeah, it was really, really strange. But um, I didn't get the feeling, I didn't feel unsafe, which is it's weird, you know? Like when you World Superbike or even in Qatar GP this year, you it's become the norm, hasn't it, that we're wearing masks or we're wearing face shields when we're on the podium or we put, we put yeah. glasses on in certain places to stop, you know, anything potentially uh, causing the spread. But over there, they what I did find is a lot of the, the the riders and the teams are doing these very quick lateral flow tests, which you can now get in the UK. So I was talking to a couple of teams, and they say, no, every every two or three days, they're doing their own test, they're checking that they're negative, and that's how they're they're doing it. But it seems to be very different over there. You know what I would say is there's very there's a lot of skepticism about the virus. You know, I spoke to two or three riders, two or three team managers, where they're like, "This last year has been a big joke. This is ridiculous. We shouldn't lock down." And they were really serious. You know, um, to the point where I felt uncomfortable having that conversation. 
mm. irrespective of what my own personal views are, you know? Um, I, I'm so, not convinced myself these lockdowns work. That's, well, what does it matter what I think? But, you know, we've seen Wales lockdown last year and the numbers continued to go up, even though they were completely locked down. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because I know last year as well, although I didn't travel out to, to Moto America, mm-hmm. I, know I don't want to turn this into a COVID um, mm. podcast, but I think it's important in the context of what we're talking about with overseas travel. Um, I think we're coming out of this global situation and I think that travel will become easier, which is great for everybody involved, especially from a cost perspective. Um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just one person traveling left, right and center, but it costs me, you know, 120 pounds for the COVID test to fly to the States. It cost me $150 when I was in the States to fly home. You've then got to do this day two, day eight COVID test, which is another 200 pounds. So well, yeah, it was start- one, for me, it was 120 euros in Barcelona to get here pre-flight, the flight itself. Um, any transport to or from the airport at both ends, plus the day two and day eight test here, that was another two hundred and ten pounds. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous money. You know, you're talking about five hundred pounds, pretty much. But when you just put to that get back from Barcelona to London, it's crazy. Yeah, but I was going to say, when you then multiply by, let's say it's five hundred pounds, and you've suddenly got a team, like I know Paul Denning was saying on Twitter, this yes. is adding a massive cost. This is forty, fifty thousand euros at the minimum. For, I actually, Michael, I chatted with Paul Denning at the Barcelona test about that very thing. And he, he said, and it was a smart move by Paul. He said, everyone come to the airport in your team gear. Let's go as a group. We're there for work. We're not going on holiday by any means. You know, we're going to work. We've got a test the circuit. Uh, but he said, even then, you're on tenterhooks when you get to the check-in desk because you've all done your test. You're all negative. You've done all you need to do. You've got your mask on and everything else. But it then it's down to the discretion of, in that case, British Airways. If they don't want you on the plane, they can stop you boarding the plane. Yeah, and we, we had that earlier in the year. Again, I was doing some work. You mentioned Leon Cameo. I was out in, in her F, and, and literally we got stopped for an hour and 20 minutes, um, even though we had all the relevant paperwork. And as really? you see, yeah, I, I mean, you know what it's like with traveling. I turned up for the States. I've turned up to travel to, to watch some testing and things in uh, in Europe. And I feel like I'm carrying half a tree in my bag. You know, you've yeah. got every single piece of paper, letters, contracts of employment, showing where you're staying, everything that you possibly need. And we, we were told you're, you're not entering Spain. And it's like, well, hang on, we're going for elite sports. This is what we're doing. And there's phone calls going on, documents being emailed to the to the consulate and things. And then literally they came back and said, we can board the plane. But and I've seen riders, Tom Sykes, um, Tom Buthamos, they were turned around. They were not allowed to travel. Really? Yeah, where other riders turned up with the same documents in the offer, who's, who's going to be in Super Sport 300 this year, rocked up, same flight, um, Josh Watley, CV, and got straight on the plane. And so on what it's, grounds were Tom Boothamos and Tom Sykes not allowed to board? What have they apparently done that was so wrong? Well, that's you the point. They had exactly the same documentation as Josh Watley or in the offer, and, weren't, and they weren't allowed to travel. Um, and and what it's funny, because I spoke to Tom, um, and he rang me, and he said, I've just been turned around from this, this Iberia flight. Uh, and he said, I'm, I'm now uh, on a flight four hours later from Gatwick with EasyJet or whoever he was going with, went to uh, to Gatwick, got straight on and then never stopped him with the same uh, documents. It's crazy. You know, I think perhaps the worst of this. Now, let's remember, you know, I've even had family members who passed away, an auntie of mine last year. She went into hospital with a leg problem and never came home. You know, this is how serious this is. So by no means are we avoiding that, are we? But the, the mental anxieties and stresses this is causing for people and the uncertainty is absolutely terrible, isn't it? And let's just hope common sense prevails and we can get through this as quickly as possible. I think there is a lot to be said for common sense, don't you, in life in general? You yeah, know, we, yeah, there have sure. been stories around the different paddocks last year of people getting together in big groups in the paddock or food being moved around or uh, people supposed to be staying in the hotel rooms and they're going out mingling or whatever. That's just silly. That's stupid. Let's apply some common sense. Do what you need to do. Follow the rules. 
you know, none of us want to be self-isolating. None of us want to be doing quarantines. It's not like the people who are doing it want to be doing it. So these right. people who think they've got special treatment, let's start being sensible. Get through it. Get out the other side. If you're yeah, ex exactly. It's, and I think it, just I to... It, sorry, it puts things into perspective, doesn't it, for our grandparents and relatives who had six years of a war to go through. It right. really does put things into perspective. Anyway, sorry, let's not get it into... Yeah, no, so we, we're going on a different tangent. I guess my, my, my sort of take on all that with all the travel is... I think that if things keep going the way that they are, I do think we'll do Argentina and I do think that we will do Indonesia. I mean, if we, if I hope, we do, I'll I put hope my hands up and say I was wrong. I will put my hands up, yeah. but I can't see, just cannot see how they can happen. If they happen, we'll come back to this. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I think it's going to be it's going to be touch and go, but I just feel that if we keep going on the trajectory that we're going, the world will be in a better place. And then I don't see any reason why they can't happen. I'm not saying that they won't, but my general personal feeling is that, look, we're going to be in a better place we may go there and it'd be limited fan numbers, whatever, but but I do think it'll it'll happen. Whatever um, does happen, from a riders and team's point of view, of course, whatever happens is no one knows for sure how many rounds or races we're going to have. So it makes it even more important to bank, bank, bank as many points as you can, because you don't know when the season's going to finish. And also avoid injury because we've got back-to-back -back rounds probably starting the season in Aragon and Estoril. You cannot afford to hurt yourself at Aragon and miss potentially six races. That's what not going to say it would be championship over, but it would be a pretty big nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've been chatting almost half an hour. So I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. I want to just have one one quick sentence or, or summary yeah. as a preview for, for BSB as well, because coming up next on the Vroom podcast uh, will be a title contender, Christian Iden. So I just want to get your take on BSB. But very quickly, uh, yeah. as I said, we've got three races from World Superbike at every round. We've now got double headers in World Supersport and World Supersport 300 at every round that they're going to be at, which I think is fantastic for, for the championship. I'm sure that you, you agree. So very yeah. quickly, give me a name. Who is going to be the Superbike, Supersport and Supersport 300 world champion in 2021? Oh, Mr. Gregory Haynes. It's me. Um, right. You know what? I said Scott Redding last year, didn't I, when you and I were in Jerez. Uh, I, all this time I've been saying Scott Redding again. I'm going to have to go Jonathan Ray. Sorry if people think that's boring, but I, and I'm sorry to Scott Redding as well. But I, for now, I'm going Jonathan Ray. Uh, Supersport, I am going to say Federico Caracasudo. He's back in the class. He's comfortable in the class. He's been quick in testing. He's with the GMT 94 team. I actually would love to see Jules Cruzel win it. Krimanak is back. There's a load of other names we could mention. Odin, Darlinko. I'm going to go Caracasulo. I think he's got a point to prove after a difficult World Superbike season last year. 300s is anyone's bet, really. Um, I do think the rider with the best racecraft out there is the world champion, Jeffrey Baus. Uh, there's three champions, aren't there? Carrasco, Garcia, and Baus, unless I'm missing anyone, but I think that's it. Scott um, is no longer there. Mika Perez is no longer there. I will go. Jeffrey Baus is going to do the double. That's what I'm going to say. So I'm going to go Ray, Caracasulo, Baus. Wow. Well, we've never had back-to-back -back champions in World Supersport 300, so that'll be interesting. As I said, uh, just before my uh, laptop dies as well, because that's now flashing at me, very, very quickly, uh, give us your thoughts ahead of BSB. As I said, Christian Iden is up next. We're going to get all of his take on, on testing, but uh, Christian's been fast in testing. Josh Brooks has been fast in testing. Bridewell as well. We've got a whole host of new names as well uh, in the championship this year. What's your uh, what's your take on BSB? Because we've still got about six weeks to go until, or five weeks to go uh, by the time this podcast comes out uh, for, for the championship to start so your, your thoughts on on bsb as i just frantically try and plug this laptop in so we don't miss the end of your uh, your interview okay first of all i'll quickly say i think it was a very sensible move uh by msvr stuart higgs jonathan palmer and everybody involved there to start the season later it makes absolute sense stuart is the man when it comes to common sense 
so that's good news that it's starting later. There's more chance of the season getting underway and the dates being maintained. There's more chance of fans coming in, which is the main reason they're starting it later. So that's good. Uh, you would have to think when you over a longer season, it's more of a normal season, but there are changes. More riders are going into the showdown this year. So that's the first change we've seen, the first big change we've seen, apart from the, uh, the podium credits, now known as podium points. That changed a few years ago. But to have more riders going in is a big change. Uh, I'd have to say Brooksy, I think, Michael. I have to say Josh Brooks, because I think over the course of a long season, exactly like with Jonathan Ray, experience comes to the fore. There's a lot of other people on new bikes, new teams. Iden could be strong. Uh, I think it's all pointing towards Josh Brooks, as it did last year, to be fair. I'm going to go Brooks. And just very quickly as well, what's your take on the new Supersport rules? Because that's something we've not really had a chance to talk about. Just final question from me then. Uh, obviously, the Dynavolt Triumph team, PTR, uh, Simon Bookmaster, moving across uh, after being such a stalwart of Honda for, for many, many years, uh, now running the new Triumph efforts in BSB. Kyle Smith, Brandon Pash, their two riders on the 765. I know it's an exploratory uh, sort of evaluation, isn't it, in terms of these new Supersport rules. Thoughts about that? I mean, I think it's a good thing to get uh, a new manufacturer back on the grid. And I know that there's talk about whether Ducati and Aprilia would even be on the grid in the future as well. So, so thoughts about that? Certainly changes a foot in Supersport. Yeah, I would say for those two riders, first of all, let's hope Kyle Smith can keep it on the island because he's got a bit of a reputation of being quite adventurous. Very, very quick rider, tends to crash a fair amount. Um, I don't think you'd mind me saying that. He's had some interesting ones over the years. Uh, Brandon Pash, we should quickly congratulate him. I'm sure you've already mentioned this on the podcast, but for his Daytona uh, 200 win earlier this year. Great stuff for Brandon, but I spoke to him after and he said very much wants to be back at BSB, which is exactly what he's doing. Um, I think it's great. It's, it's really great, too, to see MSVR and Dorna linking up in this way to sort of trail these new rules in the BSB paddock. Uh, and as you said, we should have a triumph uh, on the grid in World Supersport next year. Ducati with their Supersport bike. We haven't seen a Ducati in the World Supersport Championship for a very long time, have we? I think it's good. And I think it's also a worry for the other manufacturers. I know the GMT94 team uh, have already said they're pushing to try and get into World Superbike because they can't afford to be left in World Supersport next year, 22, with all these regulation changes, because it could topple the grid completely. Remember when we had changes in Supersport 300, and they can't afford to let that happen. I think it's going to be good. The more manufacturers in there, the better, because it's been very much a Yamaha R6-dominated category, hasn't it? We want to see the MV up there. We want to see the Honda up there. If we get a Ducati and a, a Triumph and some others in there too, great. We need variety. It's as simple as that. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, fully agree. Fully, fully agree. Well, Greg, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. As I said, we're going to have to uh, to end it there. I know we could talk for hours, the pair of us, once we get together. We're like two old women, aren't we? Just waffling on about uh, everything and everything. But uh, obviously, up next on the podcast is Christian Iden. So we're really excited to, to chat to him. Uh, I know, obviously, you're going to be uh, based in the UK for most of the season. So I'm sure we'll catch up at some point, uh, most likely, I guess, at a BSB event. Uh, that doesn't clash with World Superbikes, given obviously that we'll both be working when World Superbike is on. So I shall look forward to catching up with uh, with you in person uh, at some point in the next few months. And uh, thank you for joining us once again on the Vroom podcast. Yeah, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, all the best to everyone listening as well. Hope everyone stayed safe over the off-season. Hope to see you all at a circuit somewhere with Michael. Do bring your sunglasses if Michael's there because of the shining white tee. I'm brighter than the LaSalle International Circuit floodlights. And uh, hopefully see you all soon on Eurosport too. Yeah, as you can see, Greg Haynes uh, does not have a uh, future career in stand-up comedy, but uh, <laughs> he uh, is always a great guest to have on. So uh, thanks again, Greg. Thanks, Michael.
Our final guest this week is uh, the, uh, well, I don't know how we describe him really. I was going to say the Joker, but uh, his efforts prior to Christmas uh, with his Santa Claus jokes leave uh, a lot to be desired. But Christian Iden, who has made a bit of a name for himself over the previous year, couple of years in uh, the British Superbike Championship, a lot of our viewers, especially those that have followed World Superbikes for a while, will remember Christian from his time with the, the Bimota team, the All-Star team, and prior to that, his exploits in super sport as well. So uh, Christian, uh, thanks for dialing in and joining us. So, kept my word. Uh, I know people say that I just talk shit a lot of the time and don't keep my word, but we promised we'd get <laughs> a full slot on the Vroom podcast. Uh, so thanks for joining us. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be on. Yeah, I got my uh, my little cameo appearance at the end of last year, so now I finally get to be on properly. I must have done must have done a good enough cameo to to warrant a full a full slot. I just thought it'd be good having you on rather than me talking forty minutes talking uh, about myself and uh, and taking the piss out of myself. We can just get you on and uh, we can take the piss out of you. That's, that's the only reason we've got you on. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> yeah. Let, let's just talk about that uh, that cameo appearance first before we get into the real serious stuff about uh, obviously BSB and World Superbikes because. Uh, by the time this uh, audio goes out, the, the World Superbike Championship will be starting in 24 hours. So uh, we're recording this in advance. So there's lots, lots to talk about. But that certainly kept me entertained. I know you've got a lot of followers on Twitter. And these daily jokes that you were doing uh, started out as sort of, I thought it was just going to be for a couple of days. But you kept it going for about well, pretty much the whole of December. I mean, where did you get all these jokes from? Literally, literally, they were, they were um, out of my advent calendar. So there was there was a few extra ones that I threw in um, when the advent calendar didn't come up with the goods. But um, for the first time in my life, um, my mum bought me a reasonably good, well, a good advent calendar. It's normally them. She normally gets me the ones like the Kinnerton chocolate, where it's like basically you pull it out and it's just minging. You don't even want to eat it. But this year was an M&S one. So the chocolates were good and the, the jokes were, were pretty good. So, um, yeah, just thought, you know, like, there's enough bad stuff going on in the world and stuff like that. A, a, a silly little joke a day, you know, it brightens, it brightens my day. I love it. I love a daft little joke. So, thought, you know, it's nice. So sit there in the morning, write down my joke and I can, I can almost imagine people reading it on Twitter and chuckling away into their own breakfast sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's all good fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, so we, we thank you for that. And obviously I'm, I'm glad that we've got you on because as I said, we are gearing up for uh, what we hope is going to be a more normal season, both on the world stage and especially here in the UK. I know fans have been starved of BSB action for, for more than a year now, and it's about time that we get back to normal. So I, I don't want to go down the COVID route and we've all got our opinions on that, but what was it like for you last year as a, as a racer? Um, obviously I've saw it from the other side of the fence in the world championship when we didn't have fans and just how different the paddock was, how empty it felt. And, you know, it just didn't seem the same kind of event, but from a rider's perspective, especially a rider of your caliber, where you're used to meeting the fans and the, the fans want to talk <coughs> to you and, and celebrate with you. It must've been such a strange season. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Um, probably two pronged from it. There's the, there's the on-track experience and the off-track experience. When, when, when I was racing in the in the heat of the moment, to be honest with you, you know, very little did I notice the difference because I think I don't I think riders are different, but for me personally, um, you you sort of become very focused, so you don't really notice the what's around you sort of thing. Um, but having said that, every time you finish a race, the amount of times that you finish a race and then go to wave at the crowd and 
actually then realize you know even halfway into the season you're like oh yeah there is no crowd you know like what it, it it's strange and you, you do miss that and um even to the point we were we weren't allowed to have the even the pass system was heavily restricted so you know I, I, at certain races where I did very well I didn't have my family there or that I would normally have there so that was really quite disappointing and I've, I've seen I think there's been quite a few quite emotional um things that we've seen in even just in the racing paddock where riders have, have scored podiums or wins and certain people haven't been there because of what's been going on that normally would have been there so I think that's a big thing you know you racing is is you get because of the way it is you sort of get put into it with your family and it's always a family environment and then if that if those people aren't there with you that normally are um in times of success and in defeat um then that's more difficult so that that was difficult and then yeah bsb has always been very good with fan interaction so um i really 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 miss the the pit lane walkabout that we do and um, that's where we get the really up close to the fans the most where we have an half an hour to an hour uh, with the fans and everyone comes and gets autographs and pictures and that was something I missed a lot because um, I do really enjoy that. Um, on the flip side, having no fans in a in one sense was actually a much easier. Um, the race weekends were much easier. I don't think many riders would would say that because it's not. I'm not saying that I don't want fans there, but what I'm saying is actually um, it seems like our workload isn't that isn't that big if you think we do you know two to three sessions a day it doesn't sound a lot but by the time that you've done um done your debriefs um <clears throat> made sure everything's prepped and ready and you're physically ready you know your your pre-session routines and your warm-ups and your cool downs and you spoke to all the mechanics and the technicians and you understand what's happening per session that takes a lot of time out of your day <clears throat> and then when you add into the fact that um in a normal season, we do a lot of sponsor interviews, sponsor talks for the team, for the championship. Um, you do pit lane walkabout, as I mentioned. All of a sudden, your time becomes taken away. And, and the other thing that you notice is um, because our paddocks are populated with the spectators, with the fans, um, a simple trip from the, from the caravan to the back of the garage, which, as the crow flies, is a very short trip can become very long because um, I'm usually late anyway, so I have to sort of do the hard stare and try and just scoot past people. But um, you always want to stop and, you know, sign that sign that autograph and stuff like that. And a, and a, and a two-minute journey can easily turn into half an hour. So in a way, it was easier because the scooter journey was always two minutes. Um, but, yeah, missed, missed them a lot. It was, it was really, really strange. Um, and, yeah, by the time this goes out, we will have had our first – uh, pre-season test with with limited fans so we will be getting back to a, a semblance of normality so yeah I'm looking forward to it I really am you know the the fans are the bread and butter and you know the the atmosphere is definitely nowhere near the same as I say there is some parts of it that make it easier but that's no way is that um you know the balance is tipped massively in terms of we need people back because that's what it's all about you know this is a we are the circus um, and the circus without people watching the circus is just 
there's no there's no fun is there so yeah, um, yeah looking forward to it absolutely so, so basically ladies and gents christian Eden is just calling everybody that races in bsb clowns it's basically what he's saying from the circus <laughs> yeah. just the lines and just, just yeah we are clowns elephants <laughs> but no i mean i think i think what you say is right and obviously my role as you know from from world superbike with the fans i mean the paddock show is the area that i specifically work and you'll remember it from world super sport and as you say, with the times of the days, you know, you do your normal sessions, you do the qualifying. Now, obviously, we've got the three races in World Superbikes, two races in Super Sports, mm-hmm. normal racing weekend. We'd still be doing fan interactions at six o'clock at night, six thirty at night. You know, yeah. uh, we were finished at ten past four. So it was a very, from from the other side of the fence, it was also very different. But it must have been so hard from obviously from the organisers' point of view. And I think Dorna did a great job from the world side. Stuart Higgs and his team did a great job just to even get the championship running last year. And I know there was lots of new initiatives in BSB as well, wasn't there, with the, the three races and, and that all changed as well. So how did you find that? I mean, obviously, maybe not so difficult for you and for some of the guys that have come from a world championship background, but for, for some of the new entries or the, the younger riders coming through, that's a, a big change as well from, you know, qualifying change, the practice sessions changed, you know, the way that you have to approach the weekend changed. Um, so how, how did you find that, especially, obviously, being on the Panigale, which we've got to talk about because everybody knows what a weapon it is and, and you were finally able to uh, to get your leg over it and, and race it. So, uh, yeah, a couple of questions in there, but just, just tell us about that. Yeah, so our, our race weekends changed from a two-race format to a three because um, we reduced the number of rounds um, but increased the number of races. So we did... We were very close to a full season in terms of race starts, um, even though we only did... Uh, two thirds of the of the race weekends that we would normally do. So actually, the 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 checkered flags that we saw was was nearly the same. Just it was condensed down into a very short period of time. Um, that had again the two two impacts on my season. The first one is is three races for me is is mega. Um, I'm a racer. As as much as I try hard in practices and qualifyings, I never seem to. Not only do I not seem to get the the lap time that I'm looking for, I also don't seem to get the sensation that I'm looking for. It's almost like I, I push too much for it. I'm actually more relaxed in a race situation. It's the first time in any weekend that I finally breathe and and feel good, which is strange because it's the most intense part of any race weekend is the actual races. But for me, it's the opposite. I feel that's my um, that's my thing. I finally relax. Usually, not always, but usually. Um, so for me, three races was a good thing, um, because you do get though, you get those that can qualify good, but can't necessarily always race good. You get those that are the other way around. And I'm, I'm one of those. Um, and also coming from the background that I've come from, uh, motocross and supermoto, I'm used to having, uh, a busy schedule on a race weekend, you know, British supermoto round would have practice qualifying in three races on the Saturday and practice qualifying in three races on the Sunday, you know, you never get out your leathers. So I'm used to that kind of thing. Um, that's sort of my happy place. So I was, I was, you know, that was really good for me. I, I, I preferred it. Um, on the flip side and as a token of jumping on that Panigale, when I got on it, um, at first I really didn't gel with it. Uh, I think there were two reasons. One reason was, um, like I said, I'm never that good in testing and I, I sort of just never really gelled with it straight away. And therefore, I didn't want to give too much feedback to the team because I didn't want to send them in the wrong direction when the bike was clearly very good from the the one two it did last year. 
Um, and then also because I was fully aware of the like the enormity of the opportunity I was given. Um, I think I also approached it with with a mindset of I had to go fast immediately. Um, and I spent most of the, the testing schedule trying to bite the handlebars, forcing a, you know, a, something square to go into a round hole. It just wasn't the way to do it. So um, the whole of testing, we didn't we didn't test as such. I, I rode round trying to go as fast as I could, which was nowhere near the pace that it needed to be, giving next to no usable feedback. Um, and the, the very first time that I, that I rode the bike and understood the bike, was was the very first race not even the first race weekend but it wasn't till we got into the race at Donington Park you know the, the actual lights went out and I, and I suddenly understood what I needed to do and it was only because I relaxed into a race scenario and and from there on we were able to start to tailor, tailor the bike for me the how much busier the race weekends were with three races what meant what it meant was we were we were one practice session shorter than what we would normally be so actually because i'd done no testing during the testing part we only had the race weekends in order to adapt something for me and basically it just never happened we sort of had to stick to to what we would what we knew worked okay um and sort of had to go with it and it and it worked pretty good but um, i definitely think there was there was avenues left unexplored but but time is so critical you know you we get we get two practices um and then you're into qualifying so free practice one is always the rider the bike you you, you check the rider out you check the bike out you know as as a rider you sort of build up through free practice one there's a natural progression of getting towards a lap time so it's very hard to test anything really in free practice one because you're naturally speeding up the track gets more rubber down so it gets faster and faster um, then you're into free practice two, and essentially the first the first run out in free practice two is about the only time that you can test something. So you might change a, a part or a setting, and if that is um, quite a fundamental change, if if you go out in the first run of free practice two and it's not immediately better, as indefinitely better, then you just don't have time to sort of work to make it better. So if I come in after five laps with a new setup and my comment is, um, yes, it has potential, but then that means that the uh, the initial response is always, OK, we're going to have to go back to what we know because qualifying is coming up in two hours. So we have to make sure we've got the most of what we've got. So the trouble is, is you, you never actually. Once the season started, we just don't have time to do anything other than fine tune the base setting that we had. So that's what we did. Um, as I said, it worked well at certain places, less well at other places. But, you know, I'm already now we've done a few tests already and I'm already starting to work through some of the things that were we don't have any new parts, but we have parts that are in the in the back of the truck that I never use. So we've got quite a few parts that are new to me um, and those new to me parts. Um, I already feel like we're making some kind of progress. So. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, that, that was that was how it affected my season. One way it was good because I like racing. It's what I'm used to. It's what I'm better at. And um, but on the other hand, I was like, Oof, if only we had one more session, we could just try, you know, X, Y and Z and, and see, see if we would make it better. But just never happened that way.
Yeah, and obviously you mentioned there, obviously that the changes, and I totally understand what, what you're saying. And you mentioned the testing in a couple of weeks' time. You're going to be you've already had tests now with some limited fans back, but we have had or we have seen tests. And I say this just really for the benefit of those that, that tune in every week or every fortnight to listen from Australia and, and from the States. Um, there has been some BSB testing, albeit behind closed doors. And whatever you've been testing seems to be working because you were fastest at Snetterton last week. Um, mm-hmm. Two Ducatis were at the sharp end, yourself and Tommy Bridewell, albeit for a different team, but both bikes quick. Um, we know that your teammate's going to be there or thereabouts, Josh Brooks. You can never write him off. You've got the Honda guys, you've got the BMW guys. There's a couple of fast Japanese guys coming in. Takahashi, who's, of course, won um, Suzuka. You've got Ryumi Mizuno, who's super quick in the All Japan series. I mean, once again, it's a stellar grid. Chavi Forrest, can't forget Chavi. I know you raced with him previously, but, you know, he's back in this mm-hmm. series after another exploit in World Supers. I mean, whatever anybody says, whether you agree with the rules or you don't agree with the rules, whether you agree with the showdown or you don't agree with the showdown, it is... The, arguably the best domestic championship in the world, isn't it? And once again, for this year, you know, hopefully fans are back. It is going to be another cracking season with probably any one of 10, 12 guys that can be fighting for the podium week in, week out, which is, as you've said before, the fans are what makes the championship. But that's what the fans want to see, don't they? They want to see different guys winning, different manufacturers fighting. And, you know, fair play to, to Stuart Higgs and the guys. I think, it, once again, it's shaping up to be a cracker. Yeah. Um, uh, BSB is just insane in terms of depth of field you know you mentioned that there could be 12 fighting for a podium in all honesty it's i think it's actually more than that you know it's um if i started to name people i think that can that that, that have the potential to win a race i think it would take me a while to until i stopped you know um obviously championship wise then you can always narrow it down the cream does tend to rise to the top over time um, but everyone goes into a season with with high hopes and um, with an idea that they can be the champion. And yeah, BSB, the rules, I think, are are really, really great. Um, it's funny, I don't actually take I don't take much technical interest in things because it's not my forte. And um, I did another another interview just the other day, actually, and they they asked me about the showdown being back. And I didn't know. Um, so, but again, it's to me, um, my job is to score more points than anyone else. So whether the rules mean that you have to stop after however many rounds and you start again with a clean slate, i.e. the showdown, then I still have to score more points than anyone else. It's still the same sort of scenario. So I don't, you know, whether I think whether you agree or don't agree with the showdown, as a rider, it depends on whether you've whether it's worked for you or not worked for you. You know, if if the, if it's a showdown season and you've had a great start to the year, you're going to hate the fact there's a showdown. You know, if if you're a rider that's had a really bad start to the year but you come good at the end, you're going to love the showdown. So, I think people's ideas and perceptions on that um, are always sort of tainted by what goes on. It's it's one of those things where you wish you had a crystal ball. You know, last year. We had no showdown and we didn't need it. You know, we went into the last round with five potential championship winners. Um, but then you never know. You might have another season where someone's a runaway, a runaway leader of the championship and it just needs a bit of spicing up. So the point is, is that the rules are the same for everyone. Um, in terms of bikes, I think we've got a real, really clear sort of 
a very level playing field as, as level as you get in in any championship around the world i think um and yeah in terms of riders as well um bsb's always been very good at enticing some of the best riders in the world to um to be in the championship and i was actually really you mentioned the two japanese riders and i was really really excited um to see those two names um coming into the series because i think they're a great addition um, they've been finding their feet steadily during testing, but I've got no doubt that those two guys are going to be um, insanely quick once they get a grasp of the the British tracks and how we how we run in BSB. So yeah, we've got some really cool additions to the championship, um, a really strong field from you know from top to bottom. And uh, yeah, as, as a racer for me, it, it's funny because you the people that you're racing one weekend are definitely. You know, you never know if they're the same people you're going to be racing the next weekend because you suddenly, you know, someone who was 10th the week before suddenly is, you know, puts it P1 and you're like, where did you come from sort of thing. So different tracks obviously suit different bikes and different tracks suit different riding styles. So you always see a fluctuation at the end of it. You do tend to find that the cream does rise. You get those that are always there or thereabouts. But yeah, the um, the number of riders that can potentially win a race, I believe, is in the above 15 riders can win a race if if things went well for them on the day yeah and that's more, yeah and that's more than half the grid isn't it so or getting yeah, to 50 percent of the grid which is which is yeah. fantastic and just a couple of quick questions just to finish off then and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh about world superbike because uh, I'm, I'm interested in your your take on that as well um Obviously, we, we hope that you're going to be a contender this year. Uh, obviously, you hope that as well. Uh, so does the team, everybody around you, and I'm sure that you will be. If you had to pick sort of two riders that you think, right, these are going to be my strongest rivals, and it, again, it's difficult, right, when you think there's 15 guys that can win races, who do you think, based on past experience, based on last year, who do you think is going to be your biggest rival? And I'm not saying that you don't discount other riders as well. Of course, you, there's going to be others in the mix, but if you had to yeah. just pick two. Uh, two, I don't think I can do. I'll try. I'm going to do two, and then I'm going to give you two more. Okay. So, so two. The the obvious one has to be Josh. You know, if you don't pick the champion, then there's no point having a championship because the whole point of having a championship is to find out who's the best, and he's got a number one play on. Therefore, he's the best. And um, the way that Josh goes about his business, the way he rides, you know, it's clear he's been around the block, and again and again, and knows what to do and knows how to put championships together. Um, Jason and as well, it's it's easy to go for Jason. Actually, I'm going to switch. Jason going me second tier. I'm going to go for Taron. Taron McKenzie is, in my opinion, well, they're, they're all super talented, but Taron last year was just super quick when he was on his game, just had more DNFs, and I didn't really look into why, but just seemed to have a lot of races where he wasn't where he should have been or, or no scores. Um, Taron sort of has one of those where one thing goes wrong, it seems like everything goes wrong. Um, but then other weekends, everything goes right, and and you know he's untouchable sort of thing. So, yeah, Taron and and Josh are the two the two that I think. Um, <clears throat> and then I'm going to give you two more, which is Jason finished P2 last year. Um, those Yamahas, obviously Taron's teammate, they seem to have them on song and working well at most of the BSB tracks. Um, and then finally, I'm going to go for Kyle Ride because uh, Kyle probably doesn't get a, enough recognition 
um, than I believe he deserves. But he's a he he's a far more intellectual rider than what he looks. So he's got this like kind of Eminem style thing going on, which can actually make you under underrate how precise he is on a bike and his his talent is is really really high um and it's matched by his knowledge and understanding of how and why to be fast um and i've not seen that in many other riders for quite a long time um so kyle if if and when he gets the feeling is is gonna be you know certainly a superstar in in the coming years if not this year so we'll see no i love that i like seeing that that take because obviously again fans looking from the outside journalists we only see one side of a rider don't we we don't see the whole picture where you guys are sharing uh sharing the track with them and i i do echo what you say with regards to kyle i know obviously when he came across to the world super sport championship a few years ago it didn't work out for him and then he, he mm. went away from the sport didn't he even just as a teenager he said that's it i've had enough mm -hmm. with the pressure it's all got to me and he kind of reinvented himself and came back into it through that uh, the GP2 series, the Moto2, and look at him now. I, I agree with you fully, absolutely. Just very quickly then to, to, to finish, because I know you you talk almost as much as me. Not quite. You can't you can't take that. <laughs> but uh, I just want to touch on on, on World Superbike. We uh, we had uh, Greg Haynes, who's obviously the Eurosport commentator, on uh, just prior to you uh, on on today's episode, and we were sort of talking and and, and chewing the fat about superbikes in general and what we expected for the season. You've obviously raced in that paddock, in the World Superbike paddock. Uh, it's a slightly different paddock. They do things slightly differently. Uh, the fan interaction is slightly differently. But when it comes down to it, the lights go out. It's motorcycle racing. So how do you see or how do you feel that the World Superbike has gone in the last couple of years? I mean, again, personally, and I'm going to say this because I work for the championship, I can see the, the improvement. I can see the depth of field getting bigger. You can see the parity of the motorcycles getting closer. So I think we're going in the right direction. Um, how how do you see it? Because I know the last time you were there, obviously you've, you've done wild cards in Supersport. You've raced, obviously, with the the BMW, uh, not the BMW, mm -hmm. the Bimota, and there was all the homologation things, and the points were taken away. We seem to be in a completely different place now um, in in World Superbike, which, as a fan, surely is a good thing. But from a rider's perspective, do you still have aspirations to come back to the World Championship, or how do you see it? Yeah, um, I, I always have those sort of aspirations. I don't. I don't I don't hang any hopes on that happening because um, with a racer's situation, um, it's not always how good you are that will determine whether or you do or don't get a chance. Um, World Superbike, just to touch on what you said for me, in the last few years has has really turned a corner and become, to me, a far more interesting prospect. You know, the like you said, the bikes now are... are far more close to each other in terms of how how good they are the independent teams are, are now able to put a bike out there that's that's super close um to to the official teams um and that makes a that makes a big big difference and obviously this year again we've got some really really big big names in some independent teams um and obviously last year you saw some independent teams taking wins and, and putting it to the big guys. So I really think that it's starting to, when you start to merge into the, when the factory teams, the independent teams start to merge in terms of results, then that's where, you know, you, the championships doing something right, because it means that, you know, anybody can be out there and compete. Um, and for me, 
looking, would I want to come to World Superbike? Of course, the answer is yes. Um, but now even more so, because in previous years, um, unless you jumped on a factory bike and only one or two of the factory bikes as well, not even a, not even most of them, just one or two of them, um, you, you were on a you were going nowhere basically no matter how good or bad you were on as a rider you you had no chance and uh, you know whereas now that's changed a lot so um i think for riders that's what's always been a big pull towards the bsb championship because they know that they can come to pretty much any team and if they believe in themselves and they've got the talent they can do well and now world superbike is becoming like that so um yeah it would be lovely um i, I, I love bsb I love it to bits. I love the team that I'm in. So I don't have any, I'm not pushing. I don't have any, like, I'm not trying to force an issue to go back to world, world championship, but obviously the goals that I have are to be the champion. And I've always said that the, the only thing that's a shame about British championship is it can't ever, you can't ever be called a world champion for winning it, you know? So it's just, it is still a national championship. So it's a shame in that respect, apart from that, they've got all the boxes ticked. So yeah, it would be it would be lovely, um, but I also understand that um, there's a lot of British riders still already in the World Superbike paddock. We're very good at we always have been good on superbikes, and therefore the teams want us and like us. Um, but I also understand from a from a perspective of uh, the championship itself, um, some diversification has to happen, and that that has been happening. Um, you know, we're seeing now the likes of Gerloff coming in, who's been absolutely amazing. And um, you've got Folger now back in. So you've got the German contingent and just a few more. So it, it, adding those nationalities is great. So, yeah, I've got the wrong passport as well at the moment. Um, but, yeah, it, it would it would be nice because I, I, I totally feel like I had unfinished business. I had unfinished, unfinished business in World Supersport and I definitely never really got the chance um, at World Superbike. So... Um, it would be nice to to pit yourself against against um, the world superbike guys, but I don't expect I don't anticipate or expect it'll happen. If it ever does, then I'll be uh, super grateful and excited about it. But um, it's not something I'm you know it it would be a a nice thing rather than something I'm pushing for. Well, I mean, just from a personal point of view, I'd love to see you back on track, but I know you've been kind enough in, in the past, even when you've not been racing in uh, in the World Championship, to join me for, for commentary and things like that. And now that you've got this unleashed, previously unknown talent of joke-telling, I, I think that the Donington <laughs> Park uh, charity event that we normally do with riders singing, we could incorporate a, a joke of the weekend and just get you doing the joke off, just have a joke, joke off. off. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's many, many reasons that Christy Lidden needs to be back in the World Championship paddock. <laughs> I'm not sure many team managers are going to sign me because I can tell a few cracker jokes, but well, you never know. I'll put, I'll put it on the CV. Yeah, for sure. Um, just real quick, two final quick questions for me, and then we'll uh, we'll let you go. Uh, and I'll send this off to get edited, ready for for things to to kick off. Uh, this will obviously be airing, uh, as I said, 24 hours before World Superbike kicks off next week at Motorland Aragon, back to back, of course, uh, with Estoril the following week. Um, Obviously, you've been following the testing results. Um, the usual names and suspects are at the sharp end, as, as you would expect. You've already mentioned Garrett Gerloff. I think there's going to be a few other surprises as we get into the season. If you had to sort of be a betting man, if you had to put your money on the table, who would be your top three for the World Superbike crown uh, at the end of the um, season, Christian? Do you know what? It's just impossible to look past Johnny Ray as much as I would love to. Um and not that I would love to, I don't mean it in that way. I just mean um, 
he's just unbelievable. Um, I've tried to analyze what he does as a rider and and the way that he his his championship against Bautista is probably the most impressive sporting feat that I've seen from a mental side in any anything that I've ever witnessed. Um, to be beaten, race in, race out for that period of time and then to come back and, and win the championship was just an incredible feat of mental strength, um, not pushing when you haven't got the pace, you know, choosing the right moment, just what Johnny is able to do. It almost defies logic of what a racer should be. Um, he's almost too reserved, but because he's got so much talent, it, it overrides that. It's I, I could talk for hours about Johnny, but yeah, it's hard to look past him. Um, Scott is obviously, having seen what he did last year, has got to be a, his, I think, his main title challenger. Um, the only thing that sort of I'm a little bit fearful of is obviously when Bautista came in, Bautista put it to him harder. Um, but still got beaten. Scott put it to him and got, you know, not as good as Alvaro did and still got beaten probably a little bit worse. So I don't know if Scott's didn't hit him hard when he needed to, which was, was, was first time out, or is it the fact that now Scott can build on what, you know, maybe Scott's still developing. <clears throat> and, and I mentioned him before, but I am going to go with Gerloff because uh, the way that he learned circuits last year, was insanely impressive. Um, so he's probably a bit of an outside bet, but honestly, if he can continue on the 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 vein of form that he's been going and keep that progression rate going, um, then I think in terms of a progression rate, he's still on that that he's still going up. There's not many riders still on a on a positive slope of progression. There there isn't. Um, most have plateaued or some are on the you know going down the other way so I think Garrett Gerloff I don't know where his where his plateau point will be but at the moment he's still on a he's still going up so yeah he he could be really interested I'm excited to see what what he can do but then obviously there's there's loads and loads of other guys you've got the factory BMs you've got um Eugene and Folger on the um on the customer BMs um so you've got so many riders out there top rack of course you know it just it goes on and on and on. There's a there's a lot. Chaz has got a point to prove, you know. It's, yeah, I'm interested it's to see. Yeah, I'm interested to see what Chaz will do because obviously he switched places with, with Michael Rubin, Rinaldi, and uh, you know we talked about that earlier in the show with with Greg Haynes, and that's going to be really interesting. The mental side of that as well, you know, you've got one rider that's been a factory rider for seven eight seasons, and now he's gone still with a factory bike but in a satellite team, and the guy that was kind of the revelation last year has now taken his place. You know, and I fully agree with you what you said about uh, about Gerloff. I mean, that's for me is I mean, I've been the world paddock now for 10 years. That's a rider that was given an opportunity, kind of like what you were saying with the opportunity you were given with the Ducati. He's grabbed it by the balls and just gone, hey, hang on, yeah. I've got one chance and I'm throwing everything at this. And look at yeah. him winning, you know, potentially winning races, getting on the podium. And I, I fully, fully agree. Uh, it's going to be good. Final question. It's going to be a bit of a strange question to end on, but you know, the, the purpose of the Vroom podcast last year, we, we talked to so many young riders, both on, on this side of the pond in Moto America. We talked to so many riders in Superstock 600s, um, young Indy Offer, Tom Booth Amos, you know, the, the young kids that are that's trying to make a name for themselves. You know, you're still relatively young. You've probably got another 10, 15, 20 years if you, you still want to keep going in, in the sport. 
looking back on on your career, I know you you started off in supermoto and you came through motocross and you you came through that. So I don't want to call it a conventional way, but I guess back when you started, it was that was the route, wasn't it? Same as Johnny Ray, you mm-hmm. go through motocross and you you move into road racing. What advice would you give to to some of the youngsters that listen to our podcast? And I get messages and tweets all the time, and this is a question that's come up a few times. Um, so it's from your experience, what what advice would you give to someone that's trying to make it? Because as you said, sometimes it's not all about talent is it it's you've got to be in the right place sometimes you've got to have money but I mean what, what would you say to anybody out there that's listening and, and thinks actually you know we, we we want to know from a rider's point of view not what a journalist thinks not what a team manager thinks what, what advice would you give to someone um the, the, two things I think the first thing is to try to enjoy it and the reason I say try is because when things start to get serious it's the enjoyment factor it goes away very quickly um you always ride better when you enjoy it um so that's going to help you. And it, it's it's hard. It's easier said than done. You know, many times I've I've not enjoyed what I'm doing and um, and you ride even tenser and it, it becomes if you if you if you if you're a young rider and you're looking too far ahead, that end goal can seem so far away and so distant. You know, you've got a mountain to climb and that seems impossible, an impossible task. You know, and I've had it at points in my racing career where I, I know where I want to be and it's so far, so, so far away. It's just seems impossible. And yet if you take it, so it's one step at a time, all of a sudden you can, you know, you can go and achieve that. So yeah, it's try to enjoy the process really is, um, is the main thing that I would say. Um, And the other thing that I would, I would certainly say is accept your situation for what it is. Um, and by that, what I mean is you get a lot of people, I've seen it with with riders and and riders that have come into a team that I've been in and they've mentioned to their mechanics that their old bike was better or worse in certain places. And they try to make the bike fit like that or that they, they'll say, oh, such a body can do uh, certain things on their bike or if only I had that. that that's not a real, that's not a reality. OK, when you're sat on the grid accept that at that moment that is the the horse that you're sat on and you have to make the most of it uh, motorsport isn't a fair level playing field it, it as much as the the organizer and we spoke about it try to make it fair it's never ever going to be okay there's always a better horse and a worse horse just have to accept what you're sat on and make the absolute most of it and if you keep always give your best and and make the most out of what you've got then I'm a firm believer that hard work pays off and that eventually good things will come. Um, and even if they don't, at least you can be happy in the knowledge that you did everything you could. So, you know, it's th- those are the two bits of advice I would say was to not not always think that the grass is greener and wish you were on something else. Just accept, you know, accept what you have and also to enjoy the process. I've had many a dark day because of what I essentially love because you forget that you love it because it becomes a job or a chore or, or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, they're my two bits of advice. So hopefully they, they, they're a bit, bit odd, but yeah, that's what I would say. No, I love, I love that. I think that's, I think that's great. Absolutely great. Uh, well, what's, what should have been a, a 20 minute interview has been nearly 45 minutes. So, uh, <laughs> we, we did, we did say before we came on air, that we were going to be, be chatting a little bit. So, uh, this, this is going to be probably the longest of, of any of the 32, 33 shows that we've done. Uh, Christian, 
as ever, it's a pleasure. I know we always uh, get time to catch up in the paddock and things like that. So thank you again, um, again, for, for the jokes over Christmas, because it definitely put a smile on my face and uh, it cheered me up. And I'm sure it did a lot of other people. Thank you for being on the show uh, this week. Obviously, as I said, World Superbikes kicks off tomorrow at Motorland Aragon. Uh, looking forward to that. And obviously, just a little over a month's time until Christian uh, will be on the grid at the opening round of BSB. So we'll be watching with bated breath. We'll be looking forward to uh, to celebrating trackside with the victories. And uh, as I said, hopefully if fans are back, uh, I'll hopefully be able to catch up with you at some point during the season as well. So uh, again, on behalf of us at Vroom, thanks for joining us, buddy. Uh, keep it safe when you go testing. When, when's the next test? It's next week, isn't it? Yeah, we've got Alton and we've got, um, we might have one at Knock Hill, um, which is a Knock Hill thing. And uh, we've got another one at Donington as well. So yeah, we've got four days planned, maybe a few more if we can squeeze them in. Good stuff. Well, obviously keep it uh, keep it shiny side up and uh, have, have good testing uh, and good luck for, for when BSB kicks off. And again, thank you for, for joining us this week. Good man. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. That brings this week's episode of the Vroom podcast to a close. And as I said, just 24 hours from now, free practice will be underway for the opening round of the Motul FIM Superbike World Championship at Motorland Aragon. Big, big thank you to Christian Iden and to Gregory Haynes for joining us this week. Make sure you tune in in a fortnight when we will be reviewing uh, the Monaco Grand Prix. Formula One returns to the Principality. We'll be reviewing the opening two rounds of World Superbike in Aragon and at Estoril. We'll have a little chat and a little look back at the BSB testing that takes place, including, as Christian said, with fans. And of course, we'll have all the latest from the Moto3, Moto2 and MotoGP race from Mugello. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Brew, your weekly motorsport fix podcast is produced by Michael Hill and is edited by Gareth Bouch of Vroom Media. The music is by The Rain Dogs and it's a production of Michael Hill Promotions.